Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Kaz Kazadi told us that 2020 has been a great year for him. His reason? People are having real conversations for the first time in a long time. That is exactly what this week's episode with him feels like. Within that authenticity, Kaz shares his thoughts on our society's pitfalls and even better, provides solutions. His perspective is based on the fact that we are all 99.9% the same and that there's far too much emphasis on our minuscule differences. He believes that if we create a culture where vulnerability is embraced and where fear is merely information, not cowardice, we may start to mend this divide. Kaz firmly believes that for a coach, it can start on day one in the weight room. Tune in for an epic and extremely uplifting conversation with Kaz Kazadi. Here it is, episode 380. Look at that dub with the Punisher in the background. <laughs> That's iceberg, man. I love it. Yeah, this is, uh, well, you, you know what it, what it really is, is a lifetime or a life-size real representation of the size of your head. <laughs> yeah, I got the dome, though. Less concussion. Less concussion. The bigger the head, the bigger the concussion. Uh, dude, you're you're out there looking like uh, uh, what was it, uh, Don Beebe without the hell, without the shell on his head. Same <laughs> old Wellborn man. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I, as soon as I see you, I slip right back into the fucking funny shit talking. So it's good. <laughs> it's all right with me. That's good. No, it's good. Well, fuck, everybody kisses your ass all the time, and they're, yeah, fucking, you- and they're scared to death of you. Appreciate you for that. Thank you for your humility. No, it's it's true. Like I fucking uh, when I went out there to see you at Baylor, those fucking kids were like walking on eggshells. Thought you were gonna like snap them. Like, hey, you gotta like fear is the beginning of wisdom. That's what it says in the old papyruses, right? So when you're a young kid, man, if you start out hard, they'll respect the brawl, and then they kind of move backwards. You can get soft after that. Oh, so I got it backwards, McQuilkin. Yeah. I'm doing it the wrong way. Hey, uh, uh, I saw that. Um, uh, who was your one player at Baylor that got accused by that girl and then just basically won that, like, four-year battle? Where it... Yeah, Sean Oakman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Sean Oakman. I, I'm, I'm proud of him, man. That that dude, that was great. That was great for him, man. Great dude, great dude. So he's just trying to put himself back together and, uh, uh, you know, positive guy, man. He's dude, been through. He was impressive. I remember seeing him out there and being like, God damn, this dude looks like he's already been playing in the NFL for 10 years. Yeah, man, I love Oak, man. Oak is a great dude. We, we when we met Oak, he was about two hundred and forty-three pounds, and 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 he was just uh, one of those guys that 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 wasn't comfortable with kind of the things around him. And by, I say that because he was six nine, and he's young and six nine. So the bigger you are, you know how people take away your childhood. The bigger you are, yeah. I don't know if you think like a bigger little man, a bigger uh, uh, young kid. People treat him like like you're older than you are. And because he was six, nine and because he looked that imposing early on, I think he was always treated different when people interacted with him and we treated him. I think there was a level of respect, but also we were really direct standards and expectations for him when he walked in. And I think he vibed off that. So he went from like 242 pounds to uh, 290 pounds and would not leave the weight room. And, and now you have this guy to six, nine two ninety. And he wouldn't leave the weight room. He would question everything on the template. He would ask why this and why is he not squatting as low as everybody else. We had to educate him on time under tension and limb length and all this stuff we were doing. And he ate it up, man. So I love Oak. 
Uh, yeah, I was happy to see him beat that. I remember uh, when that whole thing went down, it was seemed real contrived. I know we spoke at Summer Strong about all that, but um, yeah, I was happy to see him get vindicated. I mean, it stole four years of his life, but I feel like he's young enough where he'll rebound and he'll be fine. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, and I, I, I don't like to speak on that just because it, I think it can diminish what happens to a person. Like, like let's say, you know, anybody that's experienced any type of interpersonal violence, like that, that is not something that you want to discuss with your daughter, uh, any friends of hers, or any females in our family. So we all take that stuff seriously. But once it's, you know, it gets into that 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 unknown area, and now you have two young people that that both didn't make a decision or the right decision or whatever happened. I think it just takes time off both their lives. Do you um do you think it's important to start talking to like I mean I I I got daughters and I know you do too. I mean uh, start talking to them at a young age about like about that stuff and potentially like what could happen and you know making good decisions. Is there ever like, is there ever a like like because I wrestle with this and I'm just asking as a you know as a dad and you know some, in, yeah, yeah somebody I look well. up to. Um, like, at which point do, do we start having those conversations? Like, is, is there an age where it's age appropriate or is it just something you just? Man, I start I start as soon as they can communicate. And by that, I, I, I talk to her about the difference between uh, queens and, and princesses and concubines. And I talk to my son, the difference between kings, a prince and a pauper. Like, we, we really just kind of start off young. Uh, um, I'll use analogies and say, uh, give me a kiss, or give me a kiss. And I'll say, that's one cup of sugar. And I'll take, I used to take a, scoop, a spoon and scoop a cup of sugar out of a bowl. And I'll be like, that's for one kiss. Every time you give me a kiss, I take some of your sugar and I put it in my bowl. And she would say, well, what happens when I run out of sugar? I said, exactly. That's why you got to be careful about who you kiss. <laughs> <laughs> there you and go. She still, yeah, she still talks about that. My daughter still talks about not running out of sugar. And we talk about decisions and owning decisions that you make. And we talk about, you know, like once you make a decision, it's the difference between a decision and a mistake. A mistake is when you do something that you think is, is you know, is gray. I think I think a decision, once you make it, like you you wanted to do that thing and you got to own it. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we spend a lot of time talking about that. We spend a lot of time talking a lot of like interpersonal leadership stuff. So they'll, they'll always hear in my house, they'll always hear start with why everything starts with why reason, purpose, motivation, whatever you want to call those things. And so from reason, purpose, motivation and why I'll go to the second level of that. And we'll start talking about confidence. We talk about confidence all the time and then we'll move into identity. And from identity, we'll move into uh, uh, enthusiasm, love, passion and what those things look like. Then from those things, we'll talk about the skill of focus. And, and focus being a skill and how you work on your focus and why it's important to, important to part away from the phone and stuff like that. We'll talk about emotional stability uh, and then we'll end up with pain, like being able to embrace discomfort, you know, and how that's a skill. People that embrace discomfort end up being quote unquote successful in life because they know that they can carry their labor for nine months to 10 months or whatever it is. So there's always a lot of convos going on at the crib. No, Man, to, like to be a kid of like a, an accomplished strength coach molding the future leaders of field sports versus like imagine versus the talks maybe a, just like a mid-level bankers having with their well, kids. About, I think um, it's like it's just transformative versus transactional. Well, I was thinking about just growing up like my like my parents never talked to me about any of this stuff. 
Like, uh, like their whole deal was kind of, um, you know, I was reading something interesting like this kind of like Anglo-Christian kind of value of like hard work is, is demonstrated and you see your parents as hard workers and then you have to become an emulate. And I don't ever really remember my dad like ever sitting me down and talking to me about this stuff. It was just like, hey, here's the standard we set. This is what we've expected. This is what your mom and I do. And like now you have to figure it out. And I think what's really interesting in this kind of brave new world that which we're in right now in 2020 uh it's forcing us to have a lot of conversations with our kids that uh i never had and i never really expected to have you know do you think it's uh like do you think that's just unique to our circle uh like our little echo chamber of coaches and people who understand the value of a life like a life cycle or lifelong training exercise you know like to look in the let's say an analog of an olympian like if you're starting at eight years old and you're looking to peak in the 20s like that is a multi-year multi-quad approach where you're nurturing with different techniques to like to create a lifetime versus i i think it's the media man uh well i'm gonna push back man because i'll tell you right now none of my friends who are in this game and none of ashley's friends and their husbands think like this it's only people who are banging weights or coaching athletes can see how malleable a young person really is and and not only that but the shadow that you cast is the mentor that they have so if you walk around in your dirt bag as a coach you realize like your reflection of your athletes are a reflection of you but as i think a parent who just has a nine to five you don't you don't realize that you're never taught that so you're just going to carry on whatever you were exposed to, which I think is like lead from the front and expect them to figure it out, which is, can be effective. Look at us. That's kind of, I feel like how we were uh, raised collectively here, but we know if we can do that and we can do like what Kaz is talking about, talking about quality time and quality discussion and life lessons that are age appropriate, skill appropriate, and consistently hammering that over time, you're going to see a more positive response to that, that lesson or that training. But if you just, I think if you take a look at the situation that these kids are in nowadays, there's no way I could have grown up in their world. Like the the things I got into when I was younger, thank God you did not have the ability to record what I was doing on a cell phone and upload it. Good God, man. Dude, you guys have heard me say this exact same. I mean, thank God we played in an NFL that was before social media. Are you kidding me? Thank God. God. I think about that all the time. Do you know I would? We wouldn't be having this conversation if you could record some of the stuff I was doing when I was younger, yeah. whether it was jumping off of somebody's roof into a into a pool that was half whatever, or it was just doing whatever in somebody's yard that you weren't supposed to be in. Just stuff like that that you had to come back and explain or getting into an altercation that you had to come back and explain. Really, all that stuff was, quote unquote, being young and you were allowed to be stupid. Remember when you could just be dumb? And, and do dumb things and everybody was like oh don't worry about him he's just young and stupid you can't even be stupid anymore well like uh, you, you yeah it's crazy for these guys well i mean just think about college i mean like the amount of stuff that we did uh that was thank god was never recorded that you know i mean like now it seems like these kids are living under such a microscope and and what, what i was saying on that is uh like um here i am having discussions about race and trying to explain things to my kids at you know eight years old that, you know, I, I grew up during the L.A. riots and my dad kind of didn't explain it to us, like 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 the conversations I'm having about race and how people are and then trying to explain history and 
like uh, like the other day uh, uh, we were talking about like you know about slavery and how it happened and uh, I had this professor at Berkeley uh, this guy named Jonathan Ogbu who was uh, um, he was from Africa uh, and was like a real world renowned professor and I took his anthropology class and he talked about like how the trade worked and how you know two thirds of the slaves went to the Middle East and like kind of got through all this deal and I was trying to explain it to the kids and their minds were blown. That, uh, that there's still slaves out in the world and like people are still like sold, you know, and then I got into this whole thing with, um, with sex trafficking and how people, kids are kidnapped and all this and the look and I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe I'm having this conversation with eight-year-olds. Yeah. And yeah. Like, these are conversations that we would have never have had, but unfortunately because of the media and because of the presence oh, that I we're see what in, you're yeah, it's, yeah. it's oh. pushing it to the forefront that's forcing me to have these conversations with these kids where I'm like, fuck, oh, can't they just be li- like, like, can't they be little kids? And yeah, then I'm ignorant, you know, and, 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 is, is ignorance the right term? Like not, um, a, not like a I, demonstrative sense, but like, you just don't know. Like I, I tell the girls, if, if I had one wish on this planet, I, uh, is that I could transport them back to like 19, early 1980s, 1978, 1980, and let them grow up without cell phones, without computers, with street lights and riding your bikes with your friends and just like, you know, we used to be able to ride, like I tell them these stories about us riding our bikes, for, you know, like uh, five miles to the store and coming back. And my mom never even, you know, we had like a quarter in our pocket, no phone, no water. You know, it's just like mm-hmm. they, they can't even wrap their head around. Great it. era of action movies as well, which I think is important because you go yeah. too early. The movies aren't really that good. What do you think Doris Wellborn was thinking the same thing? I wish I could take my my three boys uh, back to my mom the, used to tell us yeah, the 50s uh, or... my mom used to tell us all the time that that we were growing up in the best time. She was like this is the best time. You guys uh like like this has been a uh, a great time for us. Um Is it wrong for a parent now to say that to help craft and create a, a world of possibility for their kids? Well, I mean, and, and I'm sure uh, Kaz is speak volumes about this, but I think what you do is you try to prepare, and I, this is something that I got from Kaz, not only as a, as a coach, but as a friend and, you know, somebody I look up to. Uh, if you fail to prepare your players or your children for the future, then somebody else is going to do it for you, and then you can't control it. So you have to be able to control your own destiny. So if you don't grab it by both hands, and I remember sitting there watching you talk to those kids at Baylor, man, I was, I was so elated, one, to see you uh, doing that, but that these kids had you as a mentor, you know, and were able to go in, and you were like, man, uh, you know, if I don't prepare you for this, the league's not going to prepare you for this. They're just going to chew you up and spit you out, and it was, it, it was impressive, dude. Man, I'm humbled by that, man. I'm telling you, if I'm come listening to you, I know you're like a ridiculously hard worker. So I know what your father was saying carried through. So for you to say that about what you saw us doing is like a big deal. Like I'm humbled by that comment. I don't want you to think I take that light. So, and, and what you're saying is correct. Uh, we spend so much time between the ears with our athletes and talking about from the neck up and talking about the three pounds in, in, in between their skull and talking about how you see yourself and spending time in identity. Because if you don't, the world will go ahead and form their identity for them. And it, we as human beings have to label something and then we have to quantify it to understand it. So it's like, we have to be able to say, this is what, where you fit in. And now that I have you fit into this box, this is where you shall remain until I loosen thee. You know what I'm saying? And then it's like, so if you're not talking to them about identity and how to make sure they understand how to think and the the art of mindfulness because we do so many things as as people and we don't understand why we do them 
Like, why do we check our cell phones religiously? Like, how do we get lost on the way home and not understand how we took the wrong road? It's like, how does your mind really work? A lot of the stuff that we talk about with our athletes is understanding the function of how your mind works and why it does that. Because your mind really doesn't care about anything but staying alive. It really doesn't. Everything else to your mind is like, oh, I don't want to use too much energy. I don't want to do this. I want to be able to predict. And it becomes like this thing that makes assumptions because it wants to save energy. So it assumes things all the time. It fits things in categories. It creates biases. And from this, if you don't see, if you don't understand that you're being biased when you see someone or, or you're stereotyping somebody or you're trying to label somebody and where that's coming from, you'll just assume that this is how everyone's thinking. So we spend so much time talking about those things. So, Kaz, if people aren't playing sports and aren't having these heady convos uh, in college with their strength coaches, like, they're not learning this shit in class, are they? No, they're I mean, not learning it. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. No, they're having conversations. I think that's the difference. You know, what we're doing now, we always talk to our athletes about communication and conversation. Communication and conversation are two different things. So I, I believe that conversation happens it's it's a uh, it's a post fact it's after the fact i think communication is on the front end and it's proactive and it's something that's written down it's something that you can follow through it's something that's repeatable like a playbook you're communicated the playbook someone's giving you this and saying this is what i expect you to do now when there are mistakes made when there are fatalities and the system is breaking down now we have to have a conversation which is really a waste of time because you're talking about the fact that you didn't communicate, <laughs> you know, and that, that's, that, that's really the issue. So if you take a look at the way universities are structured and classes are structured and what happens when a young person walks into class, it's like we've been talking about it for how long now, how underpaid teachers, professors and whoever are. And I think you can see the fruits of that conversation because it's still those underpaid professions that have this effect on our kids. That profession is losing to social media. Uh, being an, uh, an educator is losing to public opinion. Like they, they're, they're not having the, the, the conversations in the right soil area. If you could say that it's not fertile, it's not a fertile soil to have the com uh, conversations and to create communication. You know, like, like John said, when he brought up race, like, I believe personally, like those are great conversations to have with young people, great conversations to have with your own kids and to let them know just how similar we are as human beings, as opposed to how different people try to make you think we are. So that's an interesting point on the educators are losing to social media and public opinion. How, how do you see this manifest itself in your athletes that are coming in, whether it's you know, fresh incoming freshmen or even, um, I guess, maturing athletes who are becoming more globally aware over their their time with you. Well, and what what's interesting with That's Kaz is is uh, Kaz is such a unique. You know, not only played in the NFL, but I mean, you know, look at your origin story. So, like, that was something too. When uh, I was like, man, I'd love to get Kaz to come on just to talk about how he's not only mentoring these kids when they come in. Cause I mean, right now, like if you were to turn on social media, you would think that, you know, black and white people were at each other's throats. And I remember uh, like somebody asked me and I'm like, man, like um, I have so many black friends. I mean, you know, so many guys, but, uh, but it was w within my job. These were people that we went to Thanksgiving dinner and our friends, we went on trips and it, you know, and it's like, it's hard to be, 
uh, you know, racist or angry at these individuals, but people like kind of like, can see this in like a big C. And I, and I wonder for your kids when they come in and like having your, uh, you know, your origin story, where you've come from, you know, uh, you know, not necessarily having a traditional path and then going through college and NFL and all this. I wonder if uh, like some of that outrage, you're like, man, this is this is the media and all them firing you up like this isn't how it is. You know, I mean, think about that piece. Man, we discussed that as soon as they walk into the door. So, like, the, the initial question was, you can see the the effects of not having a dynamic individual in their scholastic environment or in their scholastic life. And what I say by dynamic, if you're a teacher or a professor, you have to be dynamic. You can't just say you love economics and you love uh, calculus and algebra and geometry and you love the liberal arts. You can't say that because it's not about that. It's about the people. You can't put paper in front of people. You can't do that. It can't be about the system. It has to be about these young individuals. If you're a teacher or a professor or some form of educator, you are that because you are passionate about young individuals. And if that's not your reason for doing that, damn it, man, go find another damn job. Because the whole thing about it is like, if you're more passionate about um, discussing economics, you're going to get upset because they don't love talking about economics or they don't love talking about whatever topic is it is that you talk about, whatever political science or whatever. And so now you start creating these labels and you start demeaning and chipping away at this guy's identity or this young lady's identity because they don't have a passion for your liberal arts. And that's just a shitty way of thinking. If you think about that, because you don't love biology, I'm going to put this grade on you. Then when I walk out of class, I'm going to tell people you're like this. When it could be, I'm just not as interested in biology as you are. Why? Because I don't feel like you're interested in me. You know, and it's like, I think you just see the results of of the lack of that dynamic personality in that classroom with those kids. Every teacher should be making six figures. And to be a teacher, you should be dynamic. You should be well qualified. And people should be saying, this person's a badass. They can control the room. I want this person in front of my kids for eight hours a day. Think about that shit. You're going to pay somebody $35,000, $40,000 and they're average individual. And though they raise your kids <laughs> like that. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. But you can see the effects of that as soon as young people come into a collegiate environment, because some of those overworked professionals and underappreciated professionals didn't have the energy or the, the support to hold them accountable to whatever it was. So you see a little bit of entitlement when 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 kids come to a, a professional environment like college, you can stop saying amateur This is a professional environment. Uh, you're going to be held to standards and accountability right here. So when they come here, they're not, it's like a shell sock. They're just like, wow, I used to get away with so much stuff. Now I'm not getting away with anything. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's right. That's what's supposed to happen. You know? So to, to the original question, I think you got to have dynamic individuals and educators, man. and they got to know they got to love people and they got to love young people because you're going to pass your legacy on through them. Yeah, Kaz, but I mean, have you ever trusted an educator to raise your children? Oh, hell no. no. So, I mean, you're, you're like me, and uh, you guys have heard me say this on the podcast. Uh, I'm not depending upon the system to raise my kids. Uh, oh, I send my kids educated to the system so that they can get tested in, so they can move through this uh, 
fucking shell game that, that we're effectively playing. But um, believe me, and, and this is something uh, I don't... Um, if every, like, uh, how do I put this? Like, there's a lot of hard conversations that we're going through that we're being forced to talk to, and I don't want to have somebody talk to my kid about something uh, before I do. Like, I want them to understand being like, hey, like, this is, and for them to be smart enough to understand that people have agendas. Very few people go into things, uh, like, without some form of uh, agenda that just go into it honestly for the goodness of this. Everybody's trying to work a fucking angle. And I'm, the thing that I worry about with the kids so much is that they become influenced. Let's say a teacher stands up there. They're instantly given this power, this position of authority, Mr. So-and-so. They're standing up here, so they must be some position. And now they can go and effectively push whatever they believe on these kids. And even at, at age eight. And then my kids come home, and they're telling me something. I'm like, whoa, wait, what conversations are you having? How is this person framing this? And I think that's something that uh, almost cutting it off to the past. Like, I want to have discussion with my kids about, or my daughters especially, about sexual predators, about, uh, you know, what it means for, to be loved and this and sex and, like, you know, all of these things. Because if, if I don't have that conversation, somebody else is going to have that conversation. And it, I might not be able to control it in the same way. I mean, I, I'm with you about that. I mean, that's big. And I'll, I'll even say this. And when you take a look at just the conversations that the society's having over race and if you can if you can have these conversations at home and admit when let's say as a father to admit well i don't have this answer let's look up this answer together and let's research these things together i mean it gives your kid that 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 small example of critical thinking of not just assuming everything that you hear is correct when you go to college or you're at a high level educational system, your job is not to regurgitate what was on the paper. Your job is to think about it critically and say, okay, this is where I can agree and this is where I can create. This is where I have a, a, a little bit of a misunderstanding or whatever it is. But you should learn how to go through the process of learning how to think, not what to think. You know, like if you look at it, and you look at the way our educational system works, you look at the biggest states in the United States, those textbooks are the ones that are disseminated to the rest of the states. Whatever the dense population is, those textbooks are the textbooks that we use because there's more people in those states and they push out those textbooks. Okay, so when you look at things like Black History Month, that to me is one of the most ridiculous concepts ever. I think it was supposed to be something positive. It was supposed to be something to to in, like create conversation, but there's no such thing as Black History Month because Black history and American history or Black history or European history or whatever you want to say, Black history and Anglo history, those are intertwined. You can't say one without the other because we're 99.9% the same. The 1% that makes us different is where you get the skin color and the eyes and the hair, but we're so linked that we can't have a this and a that. So these companies are in these, these programs that perpetuate the separatized idea. Even the concept of race itself is not a real concept. It's not true at all. So it's like to have these conversations with kids and even at the college level and to be able to say like, let's say, let's say you open a book and the book was a thousand pages long. Literally slavery would be on 999 in black history. Like that's, if you look at if you were to look at black history, slavery literally would barely take up a page. And you're talking about over 400 years of 
you know, shades of slavery, whether you're talking about the 13th Amendment in, in prison or, or whether you're talking about Jim Crow or whether you're talking about the, the, the transatlantic slave trade, you're four, 400 years, but in black history and in human history, 400 years is a bip. It's, a blip. it's this. What was happening before that? Before that, who are the Moors? What, who, where is Kemet? Where did Egypt come from? Where is Kush? Where is Sudan? Where is Nubia? Wait a minute. What is this place we keep calling the Middle East and all these dramas that keep happening? Why do they keep happening? And then it's like, who is who is Mansa Musa? And what, how, how did we even get into this position? It's like once you start tracing back history and you realize, wait a minute, this whole transatlantic slave trade deal is something that was pushed on people to think it was like, oh, it's a slave. No, this was a war. This was a war on how we see history and how we get information. And it's a war that's supposed to divide John and myself. It's a war that's supposed to create bias between the way he sees me and the way I see him. So we don't have these conversations. And once you understand like certain politicians and, and certain institutions benefit when we are divided and polarized, that's why. You know, well, it's well, that's how they keep power is by making sure that the people. But this is what's so confusing for me. Uh, and it's much like you and I being friends. I'm like, well, wait a minute. That's not the narrative that I know. This isn't what I see it happening outside. And this isn't what I know. My friends like shit. I just got a call. Like I, I talked to Jason Dunn the other day. And uh, Jason, like when I saw him at Tony's uh, Hall of Fame deal, like J.D. and I like practically love. Well, actually, I was tearing up when I saw him because I hadn't seen him in 10 years. And I love J.D. And like uh, I called him, like, how's all this going? He's like, man, he's like, I, I wish uh, I wish the world got to play in an NFL locker room or wish uh, people got to go hang out or see this. <laughs> and he's like, I feel like and he made a good point. He's like, I feel like a lot of what's happening is that people don't know each other anymore because this isn't what you and I know. And it's like, right. how, how, how are they seeing that the media isn't being this so divisive to try to pit right. people against each other that I don't really think are pitted against each other? Right. I mean, at least we don't see that. And this this is the deal. This is where. And, and I'll have these conversations at home with my family. It's like a, a personal experience. You can't generalize a personal experience for a population. So when you're talking about uh, uh, what's happening in society right now, the conversation needs to stay focused on the systems that were created. So systems that were created that benefit the people that created the systems, not individual experiences. To say that John Wellborn got to the NFL because of white privilege is ridiculous. He got to the NFL off of stone cold, hard ass work. I used to watch this dude. If he didn't play well, he like he didn't he didn't enjoy himself if he didn't play well. Like he was gonna come back in there and train and make himself available and work his ass off. That's not privilege. What that is is a guy that's been instilled to work his ass off. Now when these words get thrown out there, it makes people that aren't looking at it critically start to say, well, this person himself is privileged. No, it's about the system that was created. And once you start saying, wait a minute, what, what do we mean by system? If you look at the quote unquote founding fathers and you look at, at Washington, D.C., and you look at the monuments and you ask yourself, wait a minute. What did this individual stand for? This guy that's on this monument, what did he do in his life to get on this monument? And then now you start saying, wow, that's tough. 
And if you look at money itself, you look at the images on your money and you're like, wait a minute, how many people died at the hands of this individual? And then you ask yourself, why are these individuals facing this way? And Abraham Lincoln is on this brown coin and he's facing the other way. What are you trying to say that you don't think we're paying attention to? And so like these things where it's like the banking system, uh, the hospital system, the education system, the housing system, these things that were made to make a certain 1%, and I'll say that everywhere, a certain 1% wealthy, that 1% does not reflect what the other 99% is doing. And so that 1% that's moving everything and creating these polarizations so they can maintain money and maintain control, they need to be in the NFL locker room because they would know that I saw John Wellborn as somebody that motivated me. Why? Because I watched him work. Like I watched his ass work. When he made a mistake, he was lethal. He was lethal the way he came into the training facility when he wasn't in a good mood. But his good mood, his bad mood was justified because he was holding himself to a standard. So I, I'm, I'm able now, 20 years later, to bring that up as an example to our staff. And then I, I really internalize it. If I'm not having a great day, it's because I didn't perform well. I, I didn't do my job well. I didn't hold the guys accountable uh, to a high standard well. well, well or, and you know the deal, man. Like, um, for me especially, I could care less if we won or lost the game. I was 100% focused on, like, we would win the game and I played bad and I'd be in a fucking worse mood. And you know the deal. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. wins and losses are great, but if you play bad, fuck, man. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing that you, you learned. And so I say all that just to say, like, in that NFL locker room, man, you really learned about humanity. You had conversations about money. You had conversations about property. You had conversations about education. You had conversations about healthcare. You had conversations, spiritual conversations. You had so many conversations in that NFL locker room and at the table when O-Line would invite you to dinner. Those were some of the, the best times to watch what happens when an organism is on the same wavelength. Those, those guys that played on the O-line and how they walked into the restaurant and even how they sat at the restaurant, the tackles never sat in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, and then it, I don't even know if they did it on purpose. The tackles never sat in the middle at a dinner table. They, and it was like just, you would just take that note and you would just say, man, these guys, they, stopped, they never stopped doing this. And so I just say that just to say there's a lot of people hurting out there and there's a lot of great conversations happening. But the system to me is not broken. It's working just like it's supposed to work because it was created to create dissension and movement and in a shell game and all of this stuff and having us talking and having people that are making decisions not talking. So how can how can people be how can they play the game, you know, and be successful and rather than have a lot of these polarizing subjects divide how can they run with it instead of fight with it i will say this in my opinion it's important to let yourself to let yourself have this difficult conversation but to let yourself feel awkward and feel bad that cognitive dissonance that damn am i am i am i bad because i was associated with this wait a minute i didn't believe that before am i bad and 
let yourself deal with that. But on the other side, it's okay to let that person feel bad. And then it's okay for me to feel angry. And it's okay for us to say, let's let's stop there for a second and deal with these feelings before we come back. Like if you're gonna have these conversations, you have to understand the person you're having them with is human. So if they get upset, no matter what happens, go back to them. Let them deal with that, that cognitive dissonance and that upset feeling, that confusion. Let them work through it. I don't care if it takes them a day, two, three. Allow them that time. And then say, hey, I, let's, let's I, I, you know, I still love you, man. Let's, let's link back up. Let's talk this thing out. And, and, and let's get to common ground. Because the one thing I don't think that we're all doing is where we're really just not listening to each other at all. And when I say, I mean, you could have somebody that, that like, like John said, that worked his butt off to get where he got to. And once he hears the word privilege, that's going to trigger him as it should, because he's like, no one gave me shit. How am I privileged? I, I, I broke, I broke two kneecaps and dislocated shoulders for this. How am I privileged? And now it's like, okay, when you're upset like that, it's good to be upset, but let's not kill the baby while you're upset. Let's come back to the baby and let's nurture this conversation and let's work with the baby and say, okay, now where are we? You know, it's, I think it's tough, man. We've seen even with our team and having these conversations and watching some of the, the white athletes like, damn, I didn't do any of this shit. Like, why, why do I got to hear this shit? Yeah. And it's okay. You want one of them. You want one of these white players to say that out loud. Like, I don't feel comfortable. And then you need to teach them, like, that's where you want to be. That uncomfortable feeling is a good place because it's an alarm. It's your mind trying to give you information. So now that we're there, we can be honest. If you feel uncomfortable, why do you feel uncomfortable? Because I wasn't here when my forefathers did this. Okay, but now think about the advantages that that gave you. Well, it didn't give me any advantage. I worked to get here. Okay, think about the land that your father was allowed to have versus the land that wasn't granted to this other kid whose father was doing the same thing. And if you were in the military and you were black, you weren't allowed to get that money from fighting in those wars. So think about what could have been done when it came time to purchase land. The easiest way to make wealth is the ability to purchase land. And you had a whole population of people based on Jim Crow and based on all these things and based on the banking system and based on some of the politicians that are in power today that were prohibited from owning land. That's why you have such a big gap. Now, that breakdown of what, quote unquote, that word privilege is to that young man causes a, a, a funny feeling. And you see it. You have to go back to him. You have to go back to him and say, listen, it's okay to feel awkward. Let's talk through it. That doesn't make you a bad individual. That doesn't mean I'm mad at you. I just, I just want you to know that this is what he's looking at and he needs to know that this is what you didn't know. That doesn't make him good. That doesn't make you bad. That doesn't make you bad. That doesn't make him good. But we've got to be able to, well, to change. I I don't think people can see the ripple effect, I think, is what you're running into. And it's like everybody is so in the now, like, look at this today and they don't see, like, the ripple effects. Like, I was um, 
I remember my dad told me years ago that the worst thing that ever happened to, to the blacks in this country was uh, Richard Nixon's war on drugs, where all of a sudden they uh, made all this war on drugs a felony and all this. And my dad made an interesting point. He said um, he was a young DA, and he's like, you know, the jails, they were actually talking about shutting down the jails because there were so few people in them. He goes, there was no, and then all of a sudden, Richard Nixon's war on drugs, the felony deal. He's like, that took more black men out of the home and put them in prison and perpetuated this whole deal where now all of a sudden all these kids were raised without fathers and then they joined gangs. And that was, it, it all stemmed from that gang violence. And he's yeah. like, um, you know, he was a defense attorney for 55 years, which you guys listen to the podcast have heard. Uh, but I remember him making those comments to me and being and he's like that's the ripple effect like richard nixon's declaring the war on drugs was probably one of the single worst things that ever happened to the black community and right. he, you know and we're still and it's a it's a war we're still losing a fucking 99 to 0 or 99 to 1 every year why the fuck we right. even have that and you know now you see the decriminalization with marijuana and and, and how many people were set free i'm like dude you got people serving 20 years for having a bag of weed and i'm like what right. like you know, and it's uh, it, like there's an interesting ripple effect. And I think the problem is, is right now in today's market or in today's kind of world, we're just looking at these polarizing events. We don't look back 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years. People go back 200 years and they want to draw the conclusion from 200 years ago to today. But they don't see all the little things in between. And, and they're just, you know, and then people are like, well, that's not me. And I'm like, yeah, it's not you. But you still have to acknowledge the fact that there's a ripple effect of these things. And, and that is a huge point. And I love that you brought that up because when you take a look at that and you say, man, how could this even have passed? And you're like, man, well, how could uh, somebody that's addicted to a substance be categorized as some kind of career criminal? Because you can see it in today's society when you're watching somebody that's strung out on the street, whether it's heroin or whatever. You're like, God, that person needs help. Yeah. You know, that person needs like that person needs help. And I have a theory that when you look at the, the way that things are organized right now, my personal theory is that there's too many men involved. There's too many. There's too much testosterone. And by that, I mean, society wise, we are off balance. man. Our women don't have enough of a voice because our women, just like at home, could line us up. They know how to talk to you and say, listen, that's a son first. That's a daughter first. I think the problems that I've been seeing personally is there's too much testosterone in the room. There's too much of an unbalance in the room when it comes time to make decisions. And the, the, the repercussions of not having enough estrogen to balance us out is we go into hyper mode and we pass these radical laws. And we, we like, hey, we're off with their head. That's what we do. Be a man about it and all that stuff. And in the meantime, Every woman that's a mother knows that was someone's daughter. That was someone's son. That's not how you treat a human being, you know. But again, they've been silenced forever, you know. And I really think that's where our problem is. And that's why we're so unbalanced as decision makers is there's just not enough women in the room. And then the, the great point that you made was even if you go back 100 years, people say, you know, if you look at the protests, people will say, well, I was OK when they didn't riot. Well, I was okay when they didn't do this. And I'm like, yo, that's not the point. You have to know that riot, looting, and protest have always gone together. Those three things have always gone together. And then if you look back, like John said, if you go back a hundred years in your history books, you never hear of these things that happened a hundred years ago, whether it was 
the uh, uh, the massacres in Atlanta or the massacres in South Carolina, or the, um, like Chicago, you know, Chicago. When, they, when they burned Chicago. Yeah. After, they, uh, they, what, what was the movie? Um, the the movie that played in Chicago that was like the Civil War movie that basically uh, um, showed like a white woman getting raped by a, a like a runaway slave. It was um, Story of America, and yeah, was, and, and uh, pretty much. What was birth it? of a nation. Yeah, sorry, it, birth, yeah, birth of a nation, and uh, they they fucking burned the uh, um, the movie house down, and that started the Chicago fire, and like, yeah. like, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> and it's like this is a hundred years birth ago. Like, if you look at Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, yep. like you had an area in Tulsa, Oklahoma that was basically a place that was deals were being made, services were being exchanged, and it was maturing. And then you had a population of people that were kind of struggling to make their own way, saying, I don't like the fact that this is happening over here. They didn't have an avenue to communicate, so they expressed it through violence. That place was bombed. Well, wasn't that, there, uh, isn't there, a cons- like, there's a theory that, like, with Black Wall Street and that the, uh, even some of the Jim Crow stuff, the, sep- uh, the black community was growing pretty substantially. And there was, um, and I, I will tap Larry Johnson on this one because Larry sent me something the other day about how uh, the idea of like integration was a way to kind of weaken and pull out some of the power because things were going in this direction. And, and this whole right. idea of like, you know, getting rid of segregation. I mean, Mal- Malcolm X preached that. I mean, he was like, hey, you know, it's, it, it, it's hard to integrate unless things are on an equal level. We have to build it up to where equals and then we'll be viewed as equals and then we can start having a conversation. And that is where everything lies. Things were becoming, you know, leveled up. And that's where the drama happens. And I think you're going to see it today because today's society, the young people, they're not about meeting and sitting down and talking. They're about action. They're about grabbing whatever it is, walking on a bridge, and if not, setting the bridge on fire, whatever it is to get our attention. But the ideas, like John is saying about integration and segregation, those things where one was to try to weaken the other, it wasn't so much about creating, and it, it wasn't so much about creating opportunities as it was, okay, let's try to weaken whatever it is. But we, we in history and in education don't get taught those things because those books that are made and disseminated across the world leave those things out. Yeah. Like if we knew, if we knew how, how connected and how old humanity actually is, and we could ask the right questions. Like think think about the questions that don't get asked in a school. Like how were the pyramids really built? Like they why don't bu- we? They weren't built by slaves. <laughs> they there's, weren't. There, no way. Are you saying aliens? No, I'm just saying the, the the level of detail in the pyramids. There's they were not built by slaves. Those were master craftsmen. Those were master craftsmen. So it's like, wait a minute, there's a part of the nation, a part of the country where, where there are, is an abundance of pyramids and no one in school, no one in public school gets to ask that question. Why is there a step pyramid in Giza and a step pyramid in New Mexico? Yeah. How come this same pyramid is made? Are you telling the aliens that this? No, and they're well, all over. What? Yeah, I mean, they're at uh, um, uh, Chichen Itza. Down, I mean, we, we went down to Cancun and went, went and saw all that stuff. It's, so it's like, what? What's up with Peru? There's step pyramids all over the planet. And the problem is it's in history because certain populations don't want us to know how linked we were in our history and how everything was working and how closely knit we are DNA-wise. 
So there's got to be a separation. And then there's got to be this mis misinformation of it was the aliens. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was aliens. Like if you understood that Egypt was a temple in, in, in a, at the time, Kemet, and you understood the history of Kemet and you were like, wait a minute, when I'm reading my scriptures and I'm reading my Bible, if, let's say if you're a young kid and you're like, wait a minute, Kush is Sudan. These people that came out of here looked like me. So my history didn't start at slavery. Now your self image is different. If you're, when I was, when I was in, in, in school, I remember like some of the conversations and luckily I was African. Well, when, I, I, when did you come here? Uh, at, at what age did you? I came here. I was about seven or eight years old. Seven, okay. And you and came my, from? I came from, uh, at the time it was called Zaire. Zaire. But it's the deal, Congo. Okay, that's right. And, and, and I was raised in a two-parent home, and I, I used to ask the right questions. So I wasn't kind of washed down by whatever education would teach you. But it, if it wasn't for that, I don't know if I would have any self-esteem at all. You know, when I hear music like this, I can't help but think about every cheesy 80s action movie ever. There's just something so great about how clearly fake every fight scene and workout montage is. And what's funny is the approach of creating sexy cut-ups of bullshit workouts with highly questionable application actually exists outside 80s movies and is more prevalent than ever. Well, like terrible 80s movies, there's so much training garbage out there to sort through these days. And while entertaining, it's scary to think that some people are actually falling for it. Think of the pyrotechnics in Commando or the over-the-top use of body oil in the movie Over the Top. Is it possible that they're trying to distract us from the completely unrealistic plotline? Kind of like a sexy-looking program with virtually no performance transfer? This is exactly why Power Athlete has been battling the bullshit for over a decade. The research, testing, and retesting that the coaches at Power Athlete HQ have done to create athletic training programs like Field Strong and Bedrock is unparalleled. We chose to further refine our templates to create Grindstone, Jack Street, Lean Enable, and Hammer because we know that specific goals require specific stimuli. Okay, here's where the shameless plug comes in. A lot of work goes into developing the absolute best program and user experience possible. Just ask our partners at Train Heroic, who have been with us every step of the way and are equally dedicated to empowering your performance as we are. They are relentless when it comes to ensuring that your journey to self-improvement is propelled by the absolute best technology. When you join a Power Athlete program on Train Heroic, the first thing you should do is take a giant sigh of relief. Seriously, because now you're in the hands of founder and 10-year NFL veteran John Wellborn and his team of world-class coaches. And for less than a dollar a day, you've just become part of a community of like-minded folks who all want the same thing, performance. And if this whole 80s movie metaphor thing makes no sense to you because you were born after 1990, simply substitute Star Wars Episodes 1 through 3. Who has the time or the patience for an all-show, no-go imposter program? Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to empower your performance today. Now back to the show. Did, uh, did, did your parents ever get into the, I mean, I'm sure they got into the history of the Congo and the Belgium and uh, all that. I mean, oh, dude. Oh, they got the rubber trade and they talked about those things. And, 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 and that was a, a, one of the big motivators for me. 
to be to like educate myself on the history of the things that people don't want you to know like you know what really was colonization and how did it happen and why do we call it that you know so history is really where the war is if you if there was ever a war i don't think there's ever been a bigger war than history like the fact that at one point we all sat down and celebrated columbus day <laughs> at one at one point at one point we all said hey we're going to barbecue on this day and we're going to have a great time on this day and this guy did this great thing and then you're like wait a minute there were already people here do you know how many people were here when columbus showed up about 20 to 30 million people and, <laughs> i mean this the, the continent wasn't lost i mean like, you oh know boy. this is crazy it's like and if you look like there were there were there were africans here and that's what you'll never see in your in your history book like the guy that sailed columbus here was a more he was an african like he they used to go back and forth from the united from these well, states there's stories of the uh of the um their uh what's his name the steve Rinella that wrote uh, that book uh, american buffalo uh does some you know goes through some counts of uh like the american indians and the buffalo whatever and uh there's historical accounts of the american indians uh trading with people with black skin yeah exactly yeah. and so when columbus comes up and they come in, they tell him the Moors have been here. And the Native Americans would tell them they, they had really dark skin and they were trading. And now when you check their, basically their DNA, you find yams from West Africa in their DNA. You find like they left things. They left things that you could not deny. And some of those things were like huge monuments and monoliths to say, these people were here. Look, I'm going to write a hieroglyph on it. And I'm going to make sure this hieroglyph gets traced back to this original hieroglyph. And then history-wise, people are like, no, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> why, uh, I mean, I understand why people whitewash history. And I'm going to use the term whitewash because we all know what that term is, uh, like whitewashing offense. But it seems like, um, and they always say, you know, history is written by the victor. I, I just don't, I mean, is there, I mean, I... I will count forever being very uh, uh, blessed to have gone to Berkeley and to sat in, you know, classes with, you know, Pedro Nogueira and, you know, Jonathan o or uh, uh, Ogbu and all these different, like, really intelligent individuals that were like, hey, this is, this is the truth that you're not being told. And I felt like uh, um, that was uh, beneficial. But, I, I, but when you open these books, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I'm reminded of a quote. There's a guy named Alvin Tolfer. He's self-proclaimed futurist so looks at the society now he passed away in 2016 but feared for the rest of the century and to quote the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write but those who cannot learn unlearn and relearn so i definitely see that, the magnitude of this quote today that is huge because that's one of the things i tell my kids like learn pass the test and unlearn it and then re go yeah, learn it, pass the test, forget it, then go relearn the truth. And then ask yourself why. And and that's the deal. Like when, when John's talking about why these things get washed, it's just these people don't want to admit that it's the the most wealthy individuals on the planet and their ability to control the images that you take in the information that you take in and the way your mind works. People will tell me like we had a mindfulness specialist on campus uh, for a whole semester, actually for a whole year. And some of my guys did not want to believe in the mindfulness. I'm like, let me tell you something. Advertisers, media companies, people that make your books believe 
and how your mind works and how it takes in information. So if you don't believe you're being programmed each and every day, you're already programmed. Like there's a certain reason why radios only play 20 songs and put them on repeat. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's, there's a certain reason only certain artists get mentions. Like if you try to enlighten people too much, if you look at history, you're going to die. Those, those people that want to enlighten people end up missing. Yeah. That, dude, uh, we were we, we went down a wormhole that, I mean, there's individuals that have uh, tried to come out and talk about this and they just disappear. <laughs> <Boom>. <laughs> so, man, if you go back to like what even got us to this topic, it's just like I love to have these conversations with young people when they come through the door. It You should watch them train after the, they after they have these conversations and after they know that they're going to be allowed to think outside of any box and there is no box once they're allowed to think like that and they know there's a certain standard that you're holding them to based on who you are originally oh my god well and that's but, what because we were don't you as like a 40 year old i mean so you're older than me but uh like you know 40 plus year old dude so we come from a different generation when these kids come in they're so polarized based on because they the phone and all the social media and this i mean how do you, it's almost like you have to dismantle and deprogram like what does that look like how do how do you help them to be like these guys like skin color is not your enemy you know like you guys have been taught that the you know like hey like white and black and this deal but this but but you don't see that in your own life you're not seeing it in this weight room you're not seeing it with me how do you begin yeah. to have that conversation and what does that look like and that's and that, that's a great question and that's the right question and i what I, i'm gonna, i'm going to applaud you on asking the right questions like this is fun to me right now like sometimes bullshit, somebody asks man. You, uh, two old friends having a good time fucking sitting around <laughs> bullshitting sometimes somebody will talk and then like you don't have fun talking because they won't ask the right question. And like you guys are, it's like, I think, uh, uh, um, having a system for them when they come through the door and having the system that enc encourages open dialogue is important and having a system that creates ownership for them. So once I learn this information, I can then unlearn the information and I can reteach to someone else by that. I mean, our first year guys, when they let's say we're at a, uh, at a at a university and it's our first year in, we're going to go over what the expectations of the head football coach in the university are. We're going to go what my personal expectations for them are. Then we're going to go over the standards of the culture that we're trying to create. We're going to discuss great cultures and examples of great cultures. Then we're going to ex uh, discuss examples of cultures that failed and why they failed. So once we go over standards and expectations and they understand an expectation is interpersonal, it's between us and a standard is cultural, it's for the environment and you get that in their head because that takes a while. Now, once you do that, you come back around and you say, talk to me about what you think about these things. Now they're like, I think you're missing this expectation. I think you're missing that standard. And now you're like, OK, well, did you know that what you're saying is actually included in this and included in that? And then now they're like, oh, OK, so I was caught in what you would say, Manush was like, right, you're caught there. But look, is these are broad. And now they're like, oh, so I, now I see why you picked these and why they're so very few. Then from then we go into interpersonal uh, leadership. And now from standards and expectations and discussing what interpersonal leadership looks like and how you lead yourself and how every decision in your life 
must follow a code. You must be a samurai about every decision in your life. Bushido. Like, what's your, like, what is your kung fu? What's your bushido? Like, do you do random? I'm not on this show because someone called me that I did not know to, to talk on this show. This falls right into why for me. This falls right into it. So once you get into those things and now they say, okay, I see what this is. And you allow them the space to not agree. And then you say, okay, come back to me with something that you prefer. And now we dialogue. And now after that first year, this is all during a year. You're done. Now this class is coming in. And then you say, okay, seniors and juniors, here are the true freshmen. Here are the transfers. Give me your two captains or give me your best leaders. They will now indoctrinate this new class into our expectations of each other, into our standards and into our whys. And so now they have the ownership of having these conversations and they teach it to the incoming guys. And you keep repeating that process. And all of a sudden you got yourself a culture and you got yourself like something that's repeatable. I love it. Very, very awesome learning experience for definitely the coaches that are listening. A question on that. Have you seen a difference between your ability to apply this at a power five, lower school, or even professional athlete level? Another great, hell no. That's a great <laughs> question, but no. like that, that people love to be talked up to, you know, people love to be talked up to and people love to be assumed smart. People love to be assumed intelligent. So if you talk up to a young person, you'll see what we call the level up. You'll see them become more enlightened. You'll see them become more intelligent on the spot. These are some of the most pliable creatures on the planet. They can adapt and adjust to anything. The only thing more pliable than a young person is war. You know what I mean? It's like, as soon as you start talking up to them and assuming them intelligent, they then take that personality on. So I have not seen any difficulty, whether it's at anybody that came in from a JUCO, either when I was helping a friend at a JUCO or, or helping a friend at a state school, helping at a friend at a small college or at a private school or at a power five school. All I've seen is human, young and, 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 and uh, um, uh, impressionable. Now I will say this, I will say this, not to be on a soapbox. I have made some mistakes before. No, you can get on a soapbox. Preach. Preach, Kaz. <laughs> I, I have made some mistakes before. And this is the deal. I learned a lot from those mistakes. I, I learned so much from those mistakes that I hold my, my mistakes in high regard. Yeah. You know, so my mistakes taught me a lot. So it's also something I learned from the mindfulness coach was not to judge yourself too harshly when you make these mistakes because life is the teacher. Like every single day you're going through this exercise of life. So you can't get upset if you trip through a hurdle or if you do make a bad decision versus a mistake. If you choose to go the bad way, sit with that for a second. Ask yourself why you did that. What emotion were you looking for when you chose to make that move? You know, what, what was it? And when you can come to the conclusion of what you were searching for when you did that, man, there's nothing, there's nothing prettier than understanding why you made an ill-caught decision. Kaz, I want to dig in a little bit to talking up. So talking up to a young guy who's coming into a system or, or anyone else, how, can you give some some more detail on how you pull that off? Okay, I will say this. I think it's important to know your athlete's background and where they come from. It's, in, it's, it's crucial. If you don't know where the kid comes from, 
it, it's going to be impossible to get him to where he's going because like as I think uh, it's like a GPS and I'll say this it's, it's like a GPS that you don't know where it took off their 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 um, takeoff point so you don't know where the destination is so talking up to me is first of all me you where you're at so me checking in and not checking in just about football me checking in about hey what'd you have for dinner last night me checking in on have you seen any good movies me checking in on hey how you sleeping how those shoes feel and just checking on with you personally if i help recruit you here i have to check in with you first and just just be a person not just this thing that holds you to this high standard so it's like first let's be a person then after i check in i have to do what you guys are doing and ask the right questions now my question is tell me where you come from i know where you went to school but tell me where you come from tell me where your family comes from you'll find out great stories well i'm actually peruvian uh, I, I'm actually, my grandparents came over from Germany. Uh, my grandmother was a Jew. You will hear some of the greatest stories if you take the time to ask the right question. And now that you've got this created, this fertile soil, I think now you can start trying to say to level up and to talk up. The talk up starts with how do you see class? How's, how's class going? Now, depending on what their, uh, their ambition are, is or their major is, they'll come back to, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm taking. Now you say, okay, so where do you see yourself? Where are you trying to go? And the reason that's such an important question when you ask young people where they're trying to go is because their frontal lobe and their brain hasn't fully developed yet. They literally cannot see the future. And so they don't understand that the decision that they make in the present has an impact on the future, that they have one foot in the present and one foot in the future. And intention draws those things together. They, they, they can't see that. So when you say, where do you see yourself in the future? It might take a week for that guy to come back with something that he thinks he could answer you to. Like he, he, they, they literally don't know. Like, uh, I know I want to uh, uh, own my own business. I, I like art or I like music or I like whatever. Now you're like, okay, now we're talking. Okay, so what is it that you like about these things? And then now you start getting into that conversation. Even the talk up uh, football wise, here's one of the talk ups I'll do to a young guy when he comes into the program. Recruiting wise, I'm gonna give this gem out. If anybody uses it, give me the copyright on it. <laughs> this, it's this, it's uh, if you've been playing football since you were nine years old in Pop Warner or eight years old, you played football since you were nine and now you're being recruited and you're 18 or 19, that's 10 years of football. So, what other profession could you do in the United States or in the world for nine or 10 years and not be uh, constituted as a professional? Like for nine or 10 years of, of playing football, young man, you should be able to run your own offense. That comment right there, right when you say you should be able to run your own defense, you should know more about strength and conditioning than I do. You've been doing this for nine or 10 years. When you say that to them, because their frontal lobe isn't developed and they've never thought about how much time they've actually spent on this journey, there's an instant maturity that you see. You see an instant realization of, I haven't been being intentional. I haven't been paying attention. Intention and attention. They're like, I haven't been being intentional at practice. And now you're like, what team are you gonna own? 
have you ever thought about owning an NFL team? They're like, no, I just wanted to make it to the NFL. Well, have you thought about building an NFL team, a franchise? They're just like, what? I'm like, well, you've been doing this for 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. And with college sports, I know there's a big pride within your school and coaches sometimes teach an us versus them mentality and there's plenty of other toxic stigmas within sport that prevent us from developing these high class young men and women are there any stigmas like that that you've intentionally taken out of your practice as a coach to help lead for a better future when the kids are past their sport I would say this the, uh, the biggest stigma that I've really focused on it's going to sound awkward just let me kind of work through it um fear like the emotion of fear it doesn't make you a coward at all fear is a information it, it it's it's the beginning of something it's an awareness your mind's trying to tell you something your minds are worried that you're gonna you're, you're gonna damage it that's what your mind's worried about. So once you become fearful, sit there for a second and ask yourself, what is it that I'm really afraid of? You will find out that you're more afraid of the opinion of someone else. You're more afraid of being seen in a certain way. What does that mean? You're more afraid of your teammates or Instagram or someone creating you into a meme. You're more afraid of being shamed so you do whatever it is to not stick out and not risk a Michael Jordan meme, you know? So that's one stigma. So you have coaches, you know, calling individuals and, and yelling at young men and using the wrong words. You know, there's certain things like don't, like, you know, don't be a coward, don't be da da you have to understand, like, when you're talking to a young guy that you recruited and you're saying that, you don't understand what how that translates. You don't understand how that translates. And when you're telling someone uh, uh, you're failing, failure is a beautiful thing. Hold on. I failed many times. I watched LeBron James fail over and over. I watched Michael Jordan fail again on, on, the, on the documentary. Failure is a beautiful thing because it ignites ass. It ignites your ass. So don't talk down to failure. Failure and success are, are two sides of a coin, and they're both illusions. They're not real because you can't have one without the other. So you have, you have coaches and you have people running programs and people that are helping young people that talk bad about losses. Now, this is going to sound weird. I hate losing. I hate it. I, I, I hate losing because it's a, a reflection in the mirror. It lets me know if I did not help someone thoroughly as, as a coach or if I didn't prepare them or if I was outclassed. I hate losing. But I love the information I get from the loss. After a loss, I'm at my best as a coach. After a loss, I take more notes than I take after success after a quote-unquote win after a loss i make more adjustments more adaptations i'm more flexible i'm i'm more pliable after a loss or after failure you know so those three things are probably the the three things that that i hear coaches bring up 
in my experience that I'm kind of like, I don't, I don't think that translated well, you know? So if you yell, and, and, and I, I hate to sound misogynist, but if you yell, don't be a pussy to somebody, it's like, eh, that doesn't translate well. Well, I mean, right. uh, man, like I, as I'm sitting here kind of replaying this in my head, I'm thinking like the amount of time that you work with these kids is orders of magnitude greater than what the, the sport coach works with them. I mean, yeah. you're working with them through the off season. I know the NCAA has come in and really kind of segmented the time. And I mean, if you were to look, I mean, it's got to be ten tenfold of the amount of time still, that you work with these. Still, kids. the only coach that gets the twelve month contact. Yeah. So I mean, you're you're the one who's really coming in and uh, developing these kids. And I feel like, um, and I'll just say this because I have a, a distinct, how do I say this, disdain for fucking football coaches. But uh, I will say that. Well. Yeah, uh, that football coaches can, can be some of the dumbest <laughs> motherfuckers on the planet, and you guys listen oh. to this uh, can listen because can I mean, be did that translate? Did yeah. that translate? Yeah. I don't know if that translated well, but because it's so one dimensional, and you know this, like you sit in a position coach meeting, and you know, like I'm sitting there thinking, like I've watched uh, offensive line coaches actually give the same install every week for you know 20 weeks. And never vary. And then, like, you know, hey, coach, how's life going? Uh, you know, like, the, like zero personality. They just are trying to f- push you full of this information, hoping that you win every place so that they can get to do their job another year. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, like the, um, the meaningful conversations, like, uh, you know, usually comes with the strength coaches and the strength staff because we spend so much more time. Mm-hmm. And it's like, hey, like, if I have 10 minutes to shoot the shit, one, I don't hang out in the training room because training room is like, uh, um, like herpes, you hang out in there too much, you'll catch something. So, like, I wasn't a training room guy, but and I wasn't going to sit around and talk to my uh, uh, position coach. So, you just naturally just gravitated towards rapping with the strength coaches, who are usually, I like to think, a little more switched on than the average person or the average football coach in that in that situation. At least for me personally. And, and with the football coaches, John, do you think it's kind of? I forget who the dude was. You said it was one of the fellow linemen. He's a big fat guy. He, he said something like, "I get paid a lot of money to be this fat." Uh, John, John Runyon yeah, told me Runyon, that. Runyon. Yeah, yeah. I, I was making fun of Runyon for having a big gut, and he's like, "Remember, I get paid ten millions of dollars, ten million dollars a year to be this fat. How much do you get paid?" <laughs> so, do like, you fuck you? Do you think, with regards to the coaches, like, because okay, so we can kind of agree, like that type of body comp probably isn't the healthiest for a human. Like, so like the mindset and mentality of some of these coaches who are totally, totally married to to getting athletes to be able to perform uh like they get paid a lot of money to to make that sacrifice and be that dumb i guess is that a is yeah, that a fair well, well, uh, assessment or is that not accurate they're very one-dimensional like uh that's and, and you you know what the sport coaches a lot of the guys do I mean, they need to be um i think they do in their minds like a lot okay. i mean but but this isn't universal i, I remember when i was in college cool. Uh, you know, Tom Cable, who was very one-dimensional and who called us a pussy every other word out of his mouth, <laughs> uh, actually told the guy, Kevin Swillis, I'm going to rip your balls off so that you'll never be able to <laughs> infect the rest of the population with whatever the fuck pussiness you're, you're dealing with. Uh-huh. That's and, and said that's, that to him. And that's like, a quote, so that's yeah, not no, against your no, swear that's, jar. That's a direct quote. <laughs> but imagine turning up like at least a uh, hundred decibels when I'm screaming it through a, a dictionary, through at a guy's head. The guy dove, went into the wall, and told him to, uh, you know, look up uh, between shit and syphilis in the dictionary. It's where you find sympathy, you fucking cunt. I mean, just <laughs> like, I mean, I, like because of this one dimension. But I've, uh, when I was a young guy, we had a GA guy named Dave Zawatson who played in the league for ten years. Was really taught me a lot. And I remember him telling me, he's like, hey, um, 
because he he was a GA. He got to get his degree, and I forgot, but he just remember being like, he's like, dude, he goes, uh, um, if you hang around too much with offensive line coaches and position coaches, he's like, uh, you just become one dimensional. He's like, you got to look for other people, whether it's teammates or strength or uh, other people within the organization for you to at least like have an intelligent conversation because you're not going to have them with position guys. They're so focused on, you know, the job that they're doing that, you know, they, they don't see their families. They sleep at the office. They drink 100 Diet Cokes a day. Like, you know the life. So Yeah, oh, I, I hear what you're saying. And you can see that. I think it's also not – they, they t- don't take the time sometimes to step away and then look in the mirror at, at, at how they're kind of just conducting themselves and what they're doing repeatedly. And there's, there's a place and a time for specialists. And by that, I don't mean specialists as in positions in football. I mean people that their job, their soul, whatever, quarterbacks on the roster, and you have a quarterback coach, and that's his job is is to find more quarterbacks and, and these guys. This thing that he's doing that he wants to excel at, it starts to create a tunnel vision. And yeah. without knowing how the mind works, <laughs> the mind is just assuming everything else and is focused on these things. And it starts to block out everything and just keep going here. And if you're dealing with you know, an O-line or a D-line coach, you start to emulate what you want. You you start to say, I want, you know, this type of destructive personality, this type of an aggressive personality, this type of whatever. So you start trying to, to do that. And then by by doing that, you actually, and I'm gonna use a word that gets overlooked a lot, you actually erase the vulnerability, which is one of the strongest traits you can have. And so it's like, okay, now these people that would rather talk to you about something with substance are no longer allowed to be vulnerable around you. So by vulnerable, I mean this conversation that we've been having, if I was to say something asinine, you guys would allow me the space to do so, but not judge me and then allow me to come back. Once you throw uh, artful words at people, it makes it so they can't be vulnerable around you. And sometimes in the other professions that aren't sports coaches, I think that gives those people space to say, hey, I had a thought. Hey, how's your family? Hey, I'm thinking about getting married. Hey, uh, I'm getting divorced. Hey, I'm struggling with this. My grandmother's dying. My grandfather's this. And it gives them a space to, to unplug, to unplug from that. Now, I think in some ways that is also our job is to do that and to create this structure around the, the sport coach and the position coach and those people that their their kids and their athletes and their even if they're a professional level can do that. I will say this, if you don't have that space and you don't have people that can do that at a really high level, that'll also kill your culture. That'll kill your culture because people feel like, again, I can't be vulnerable here. You won't hear tough guys say that. The word vulnerability, you won't hear tough guys realize how tough it is to be vulnerable until they've really matured or until they have a daughter. (laughs) I was going to say until you have kids. Yeah. Then when they have a kid or they have a daughter and they understand they don't care about football. They don't care about you losing. They just want dad home. Make sure you give me the right kiss. Make sure you hold my hand. When I say, how was your day? Look at me and tell me how it was. And it's like, until you get that type of education, you just can't make that connection like you do with the with, with, with the guys that you need to make. 
man, it's just we're, we're kind of running low on time. You got anything else, big guy? Um, no, uh, just the one question I was going to – I was – I'm glad that we got to have all these conversations, especially some of the difficult ones. But really, selfishly, I'm really interested to know how you're preparing your uh, student athletes for this football season with, uh, you know, this COVID environment and how that's going. I mean, I know, uh, you know, there was no spring ball. Uh, I don't know what's happening with summer ball. And I am just like every time I I turn on something like I just saw um, the the league that I played in high school is called CIF. Uh, they just basically just got rid of football and they're going to do football in the spring. So, I mean, like, uh, you know, I, I saw UT football, uh, you know, they're planning on doing 50% in the stadium, but they're not even at training. I mean, you know, we go to training camp, or when I say we, in the NFL, you go to training camp third week of July. I know those guys go a little, little bit later in August. I mean, they don't even necessarily have a plan for this stuff. And, uh, you know, so that's just local. So I was curious to know how you've uh, prepared these kids physically, knowing that they didn't have spring ball, uh, they had time away, and you know, as you know, it, without uh, your constant kind of mentorship and pushing and working and, vol- and uh, adjusting volume and intensity, I mean, the chance of injury is so much higher. So I'm just wondering at how you've tackled this next to impossible situation. I'm gonna say again, man. I'll, you guys gonna you gonna hear it again? It's like that's another great question. So, I mean, and I, and I, I don't I don't say that lightly. It's just important to, to be asking the right questions. The first thing we did was identify the issue and, and and the issue was the the unknown so by the unknown we like okay we don't know when we're going to play so by not knowing when you're going to play you don't know when you want your athlete to peak so if you don't know when you want them to peak and then you say when was the last time they trained and then now you find out they're actually detrained almost to the point that they might as well have been injured you're like, okay, so if you've been home for four months, then this athlete is quote unquote injured. So let's say the first month was beneficial to the athlete because it was regenerative. Why? Because they got to sleep and they got to eat and they were not stressed out. So that was beneficial. Now, after the first month, let's say it became to the unknown for them, which could have caused them a little bit of stress. So if you have four months it became my opinion that the first month was regenerative. The next three months, slightly stressful. So now it would take two weeks per month to get them into shape to train. So you'd have to work out for about six weeks until you could train. By that, I mean, after four months, a guy could come back and he could be 25 pounds overweight, which are case true cases. If you're not careful at some programs and you start out gun ho, you're looking at ACL, Achilles, labrums, low backs, and all kinds of issues because this person is overweight and they've been sedentary for four months. Okay. Now you take a look at that. Now you say, okay, now where are we trying to go after that six weeks? of training and now you're into after that six weeks of working out and now you're in shape to train now you're saying we don't have a a a date a starting date so the smartest thing to do is be slow the smartest thing to do is discuss flexibility adaptability adjustability and to help the athlete understand bruce lee's famous quote be like water be able to switch left and right understand if you can't control it 
it should not stress you out. What we need to do is take this time to enjoy the preparation, enjoy the lessons that we're learning right now about the unknown. So that's what we've chose to do is really focus on technique when we're training our guys, focus on making sure that we're slow, steady, and we're giving ourselves enough space to ramp up. I think some programs ramped up early, and now when you do that, you can stress an athlete out because you ramped up early. Now it looks like there's a change in trajectory, and that's a stress because why did you peak me? Now we're going down. So I think you have to wave the intensity, and you have to be smart with waving the intensity because you can't be at maximum intensity at any time because you don't know when, when the dates are. So you have to wave the intensity under 20% of whatever their 100% was, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. Well, it's a, it's a strange, brave new world, man. And, uh, dude, I'm, I'm uh, forever grateful that uh, our paths crossed. And more importantly, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm always stoked when I, you know, get to hear about uh, not only your successes but, you know, failures. Uh, the, the talk you gave at Summer Strong, um, and I, I, I selfishly in, enjoyed it because of you and I's friendship, but, like, it was, uh, it was really enlightening to hear not only, you know, the trials and tribulations you've been through but your mindset and all that. Um, was uh, it was interesting when you got done? I was looking around to see how people were reacted, and uh, people seemed shell shocked. <laughs> and uh, and and I and the thing that I liked about that is I'm like that's Kaz, you know? Like, what what would you think he's just going to get there and talk about sets and reps? What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was stoked to see you there, and uh, yeah, man, it's uh, it's fucking great, dude. I'm stoked. Man, I appreciate you, man. And that was I'm gonna tell you that summer strong was funny because. Pat Ivey, who's a good friend of mine, he's like my brother, man. He he kept telling me, I'm gonna make you speak at Summer Strong. I was like, and you know, just to be just to be direct, I'm like, Pat, fuck all that, man. I don't I don't want to talk at Summer Strong. I don't want to talk anything. I don't like doing presentations. I don't like doing podcasts unless it's like for something I love or or, or guys I love or things I. And he's like, I know, but I'm asking you. So basically, this falls into your wheelhouse because me as your friend, as your brother, is asking you to do this, and I'm like, no, but. I don't know those guys. Yeah. And he was like, he, we were arguing. He was the only, you're going against your values by not listening to me. He's like, I'm asking you to do this for me. And we, we fought for a while on that. And then so I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it. But if I do it, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. I'm not going to water it down. And so he was like, all right. And so we actually, after that, that presentation, I remember, man, he was so emotional. I was emotional. We we're walking back to the room talking, and he was like, "Man, I would have never asked you to do that if you told me you were going to do that." <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great, man. And uh, like, what uh, what was good was um, it was it was shedding light and having a conversation that I didn't. Well, now that I think about it, uh, like, if there was a summer strong, I wish it that had happened this year. Because I feel like the people might have been more ready for that conversation. Like, I don't think that people could wrap their mind around what you were talking about. And if those of you guys that are listening, if you can punch it up and see, look at Kaz's Summer Strong presentation from last year. But I don't think people were ready for it. And I feel like now, you know, with what, this new, you know, 2020 environment, I think that people are more ready and actually more understanding of what you were talking about. Whereas for me, like, I was listening to it and I'm like, man, this, is, this has been my life for the last, you know, 20 plus years. But it's amazing how people can kind of disassociate and think, no, that's not really how it is. 
and yeah. uh, and and I think that's a defense mechanism, you know. And I see I see people all the time happen in this country like, no, this doesn't exist, you know. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, it doesn't exist from where you sit, but people aren't just randomly upset. People aren't rioting in streets because of you know for whatever reason. People feel that there's a problem, and at yeah. least you have to acknowledge that. And whether or not you believe it or not, because your own, you know, we fail at the margins of our experience, right? So like, well, my experience doesn't teach me this, and I'm like, okay, but. Isn't that what empathy is about? Like to be able to put yourself in position of another person to understand their point of view. And I'm like, when did yeah. we lose that ability to have some empathy or and and the the conversation that uh, I actually I think I told these guys and I've told a few other people as I start listening to a lot of white people talk. I'm like, oh shit, this is this reminds me of the 40 year old virgin. Remember when he's talking about sex? And he's like two bags of sand and they call you a virgin. I hear white people. I'm like, have you guys ever had any black friends? <laughs> like, like, have you ever like gone to dinner? Like, and, and that's when I realized that a lot of what we're feeling is that people have either intentionally or unintentionally kind of segregated and don't really have friends outside of you know that looks familiar to them. And yeah. um, that's a, kind of the interesting thing. And I'm like, man, if people just went to dinner or talked to each other or had more interactions, I don't know if this would become this would be such an issue but we've Mm -hmm. you know whether or not it's for money power you know segregation that people live here and here and it's you know whether there's certain people pulling those strings i I just feel like more people need to sit down and you know share coffee or eat a dinner and have some you know intense conversations and walk away from it feeling better on that note of empathy john what we tex and i were talking to jim davis the other day and he's kind of fleshing out this idea on the fallacy of empathy because it's steeped heavily in your experiences. So if we accept the adage that you fail at the margins of your experiences, then your empathy will be just a reflection of that failure. You know what I mean? Because you can't truly empathize. Well, but but you can empathize like Kaz and I have known each other, geez, 20 years, right? Or, or Well, I met Kaz in probably 04, right? So a long time. Uh, I can empathize with him because I know him personally. That's right. Right. So, like, uh, is it harder to empathize with people that you don't know and that you've never had any communication with? That's right. Yeah. So, so that's the that's a disassociating effect that people don't know their friends and neighbors because I I go outside and like if you were to turn on the media, you think everybody was at their throats, but like we don't see that in our community. I'm sure you don't see it with your neighbors, or maybe you do, but like you know, as we're sitting here having a conversation, like it it feels like whether or not we've. Um, I remember somebody talking about, like, the Internet and social media. That was going to be such a great thing because we were going to connect all these people and we were going to have this, like, global economy. And all it did was create more separation. Yeah. And I'll say this, you know, and to your point, when you say, like, the conversations, like, people will think, like, why, why, why is the police such a, and not trying to, not trying to, no pun intended, but why is it something that can incite such a, such a, uh, such emotion you know why why is the police force something like that and it's like there's certain occupations that you have no room for quote-unquote error there's certain occupations that you're perceived as protection as something that's supposed to uh, uh, function and the entity is supposed to provide a safe uh, uh, base for everyone so whether that's a doctor, you know, if you're an immoral doctor or if you're an unqualified pilot and you crash one airplane, you should never fly another airplane. There there needs to be a questionable, like, let's say you go back 
to way before NWA and Rodney King. If you go back way before and you look at the massacres, you go back way before and you say, wait a minute, people in this profession have been making mistakes repeatedly over time. And then now you say, thank God for 2020. Why? Because it allowed us the stop motion to see this and to have a conversation because if we were still functioning like we were regularly functioning we would have never stopped and had great conversations well what happened in 2020 to me is one of the best years of my life because i was able to listen to people have conversations and listen to people ask the right questions and i'll i'll leave out by saying that i think if we allow ourselves to stop talking because you know, uncomfortable conversations or feelings get hurt or not giving someone the space to say they don't know, I think that's what will make our biggest mistake and we'll relive 2020 again. Just like the most frustrating things for uh, uh, some of my friends and I think some of John's friends was the fact that NWA song and all that stuff, and we've already lived this, we've already seen this. How many times can we be stuck in this Groundhog Day? Like, it's like, come on now, we need to move on. And the fact that this is still being repeated and it's still being a conversation is what's frustrating. And I think personally, it's because we won't allow each other to feel hurt or to feel ashamed or to feel whatever it is and allow that person to work through it. If I'm white and I didn't want to admit that this was happening, that doesn't necessarily make me bad. It just means that I just didn't want to acknowledge it because I can't control it. Like I had some of my friends say they didn't know. They were like, I was unaware that it was this bad and I had to stop them right there. And I said, don't say that. It's like saying you didn't know the space shuttle took off. You weren't on the space shuttle, but you know that there's a space shuttle that took off. You don't know if the space shuttle was a smooth ride. You don't, you don't know, you weren't in Florida, but don't say you didn't know the space shuttle took off. You know, and then it's like, okay, well, it's going to take time. Don't say that either, because do you want 400 years? Do you want 300 more years? It's just like just learning. Now, when these things are said, don't get offended, but sit. And if you are offended, say it. Let's pause and come back to it. Well, as you were talking about, uh, you know, we always joke about uh, the cui bono, like who benefits. Um, and this is something that I, I just saw this headline today that yesterday, uh, what's his name? The guy from Amazon. Um, Bezos. Yeah, Be Bezos made uh, thirteen billion dollars yesterday in one day. It was the it was the largest substantial wealth gain in like history, and like uh, and they were like going through and basically like you know uh, COVID and they went through all of these different things that were basically generating uh, income for Bezos, and then like looking at and, and then the other thing is they were going through and talking about other people whose substantial wealth gain went up, and it was uh, the owners of the media companies. So it was like the people. So the people that are benefiting from this social unrest and all of this stuff are the people that deliver you stuff to your home because you can't leave your house, and the people right. that are putting up the most polarizing uh, information on these media outlets. Their fucking money is exponentially going up, and I'm like, man, um, if there was ever a notion, and wh whether or not it's, I, I don't think that there's some James Bond evil Doctor No figure pulling these evil, you know, these strings. But like, if you look at like who benefits from the present climate, you can start to understand that maybe we're being polarized, maybe we're being pushed in a certain direction, yeah. and um, you know, and uh, most people aren't aware, awake enough to be able to, to to see what's happening and to be like, dude, you're being manipulated. Like you're being.
manipulated is a great you're being manipulated we are being manipulated we we in the and the more we say we're being manipulated the more people try to convince you you're not or the machine tries to convince you you're not yeah we are being it's it's the crab in the bucket, right? You put one crab in a bucket and it crawls out. You put two crabs in the bucket. Uh, one will crawl out. The other one will pull it down. You put three crabs in the bucket and none of them get out. Exactly. That's what exactly. That's what it is. That's yeah. exactly what it is, man. Well, I appreciate you not being a crab. And, uh, uh, <laughs> dude, you are uh, still one of my, you know, count as a good friend. And I'm, I'm stoked, dude, that you're kicking ass. And, uh, dude, I appreciate you taking the time. With yeah, us thanks today. for your time, Kaz. Thank you very much. No. But man, you guys are some good ass dudes, man. You know, so appreciate I appreciate that. you, man. For real, this was fun, man. Well, you we're right, we're right down the road, man. We'd love to come visit you and come up and shoot the shit and take you out to lunch and at least uh, get a little FaceTime. Oh uh, yeah, anytime. Let me know uh, the address and I'll pop by and, and try to get some free food when I'm down there, dude. <laughs> I'll, anytime, I'll be glad to have you. <laughs> take it easy, good, man. Okay. All right, see you, bro. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can follow Kaz on Twitter at NeilMcCauley1 or find the link to last year's Sornex Summer Strong Talk in our show notes. Until next time, bye!